Well, we find ourselves back in the Gospel of Mark now, and Chris gave us a wonderful uh, series on 1 Thessalonians and epistles and talking about um, the church and the principles there. But now today, for a couple of Sundays, we're going to be back in the Gospel of Mark, and whenever I'm up here, that's what we're going to be doing until we get through the Gospel of Mark, which is going to be some time. So uh, if you remember, if this has been a little while, just to just a little refresher, the Gospel really of Mark was written by John Mark, who had some questionable moments earlier in his life, but became a very dependable servant and wrote exactly the first gospel ever written of the four. He's considered to be the author of them. And uh, his favorite word, you know what the word is, remember? We've talked about immediately, that's right, immediately. He uses that often in his gospel because his gospel is like a newspaper version of the story of Christ. It's different from the others. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. And um, he lists, for example, ever-increasing miracles, in which we've seen up through chapter 5 now. Each miracle is just a little more uh, different. It's, it's a little harder to do. And the first ones were very simple, so to speak. All of them would be hard, but not for Jesus, of course. But um, there, each one has a particular point. And today we're going to see two miracles once again, we saw the demoniac healed and become the first missionary to the Gentiles in the last time in the first uh, 20 verses, 21 verses there. Today now we are coming down to verse 21 through the end of the chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter today. I know you have your Bibles with you, and if you don't have a Bible, there's a red Bible in front of you on the, in the chair um, holders there, you'll see. And um, But we're going to look at two miracles, and they're kind of intertwined, and I've entitled the message Christ's Double Compassion because he deals with two people in sort of an unusual way. He starts one, and he stops, and he goes to another, and then he stops, and he goes back to the first one. So we have three particular miracles, no, three particular sections in this, but two miracles. And the first one is about a synagogue official, and the second one, of course, is about a woman who does not have a name. So if you follow with me, let's just pray for a moment as we look to the word and begin to see our study. Lord, we do pray once again just for your guiding hand to open the word with your Holy Spirit to our heart where alone you can speak to it and we pray that your word would be accurate and clear and understandable today for the heart needs of our family here, Lord. Thank you for your grace today and for Mark's gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we start off with the first of the three major points here, and it's really about Jarius seeking Christ to heal his daughter. And you'll notice in verse 21, just start off and read a little section at a time here, um, he says in verse 21, Mark writes, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. He'd been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee where the demoniac had been um, cleansed and uh, healed and so forth. He comes back, he's with his disciples. He says, a large crowd gathered around him so that he stayed by the seashore. He's in Capernaum. Capernaum is the north side of the Sea of Galilee. You should all go there sometime. It's a wonderful place. In fact, the actual place where Peter lived is still there, and they think they've excavated it, and there's a synagogue there, too, 
which is on the site where the one is mentioned that's right here. And that was the picture that was on the screen earlier as the church service started there. So Jesus' boat is coming in, it says here, basically, or coming across the water again. They've gone back and forth a couple of times. And um, a large crowd gathers. By this point in Christ's ministry, which is advanced now, before he goes to Jerusalem, there's just lots of people coming. They're coming not by the fifties and not by the hundreds, but by the thousands. And they see him coming and they rush down to the sea, seashore. They've spotted him. People are scrambling as they go. A large crowd or really a mob comes out. And sometimes the word that's used for crowd means it was on all four sides of Jesus as he came. So he couldn't go to the synagogue any longer and he couldn't go into somebody's house and teach. It had to be on the seashore where the masses of people could gather around. But like a lot of people that go to church, those people weren't really there necessarily to learn about Jesus. They were curiosity seekers. They saw that he healed people and they wanted to get in on the action sometimes. And Jesus could see through all of them there. So he continues his ministry on the shore even though there are all kinds of curious people and looky-loos and people who are there to get a thrill out of what's going on is they're there. And then we come to verse 22 and this man named Jairus shows up. Jairus implores Christ to come and heal his daughter. Starts in verse 22. On one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up on seeing him, that's Jesus, and, and fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and alive here. His daughter is on the point of death, and you'll see in the other text that actually she had died while Jesus was talking to this man. Death stalks all of us. This really applies, doesn't it? We have someone in our flock that are very close to that right now. Last week I was at the um, funeral for a longtime friend, 60 years, who died. Praise the Lord, he came to Christ in his latter days as a chaplain for the sheriff department and fire department. I have seen numerable deaths. I've seen suicides. I've seen homicides. I've seen car accidents. I've seen home deaths. I've seen children that were run over. I've seen, you name it, I've seen it. More than the average. And of course, saw the death, in a sense, of our own son-in-law, Gabe Diru, getting killed in Iraq which was a big thing for us. It really hit us hard. But the Lord was with us through the middle of that, and we know that death is a reality of this world, and it stalks us all, and there's a 100% chance you're going to die. That's the good news for today. So, <laughs> so um, but Jesus could heal people, and this really caught their attention. They all were in the same boat we're in. So Jesus healed when... Um, when no one else could do anything, no doctor could do anything or anything. So they were there, and this man named Jairus, he comes up, he's a, he's a synagogue official, and that means that he's somebody that's got some importance in town, in Capernaum, the little fishing village on the northern side of that Sea of Galilee. He's not just anybody, he's, 
seems to be a nice guy. He comes up, he implores Jesus and so forth, and he's at his, on his knees, which really impressed me. And so I think what's going on here, and he had seen Jesus earlier in chapter 3 when Jesus healed a man with a problem with his hand, and Jarius, who was a synagogue official, saw that, and I think that he may have heard him preach and may have begun to move closer to Christ. He may have already come to Christ. We don't know for sure. But he had a family also. And he had some authority in the synagogue. He wasn't like, quote-unquote, the pastor or would be a priest there in the synagogue. He was really like, more like a deacon. He was a guy that was responsible for taking care of the facility. And if you've ever been to that place, it's a it's big stone facility. Um, he would take care of whatever needed to be done, getting things arranged, setting up services, any kind of seating that would be needed, all those normal things. But he would be respected in the community. He probably had a few dollars, too. Doesn't mean he was rich, but he probably had some means, basically, to take care of his family. And it says he comes earnestly to Jesus. To Jesus. The word earnestly means that he came largely or muchly or mostly with everything he had in his heart to Jesus. He really wanted to, to talk to Jesus there. That's the way we ought to come to Jesus too. Not just passively, but it was an active coming to Jesus. And um, he finds, Jesus finds this man talking about his daughter there. And he, like I said, he fell at his feet and he began to implore him, really beg him to come because his daughter is at the point of death. She was probably that kind of situation where she would have been in hospice care in the last stages there. We don't know what the problem was. She was a child, word indicates a younger child. And he wanted Jesus to come and put his hands on her because death was imminent. It was coming and it was coming soon. In fact, when you look at the other Gospels, they all record this. Mark is the one that gives us the longest account of this particular situation. Both uh, Luke and Matthew include it, but Mark by far has the longest and the fullest account. And Mark says that she was really at the point of death. Later on, we'll see that. Matthew mentions that she had died later on in Luke 8. It also says uh, something along those lines. So, in other words, this child was dead or very, very, very close to death. I do remember vividly the day that my wife told me that our grandson, 15 months old, had a very, very large, hard spot on his stomach, and that was why maybe he was crying. So they took him to the doctor that day and did an ultrasound, I think it was, and, uh, and the doctor said, oh, that was after the nurse came and got the doctor, and then they said, oh, he has a very large tumor, very large. And they admitted him to St. Joe's Hospital immediately, immediately then. We all went in right away, and the doctors gathered around us to tell us the bad news. He has a very, very rapid form of cancer. The tumor is about the size of a football and it's growing by day. But it also responds well to chemotherapy, praise the Lord. Those of you around remember the story, and he was close to death. We, my son Caleb, ready to go to the mission field, stopped everything. They spent, praise the Lord, they only lived three blocks from the hospital, they could walk there. 
They spent day and night at the hospital with him, only going home to shower one-on-one. -on -one. We would go every day, we, every day, we watch the blood pressure go a little higher and the heart rate go a little higher, and he's laying in bed and he's laying sideways because the tumor was so big and his dad's laying next to him. We were all just gripped. You know, a child is different because they're young and you think they've got their life in front of them, but not always. But God was good, and we prayed, and you prayed, and many prayed, and we didn't know how it was going to work out, but in the long run, the chemo they found eventually, just in the last, really, probably couple of days that he perhaps would have lived, and gave it to him, and the next day he started to get better, that quick. Praise the Lord for modern medicine, and for doctors. He was on that chemo for a number of months, and then they did the surgery, and the Tumor had shrunk to the size of uh, a golf ball. And he's just fine. And he's planning to go in the Coast Guard. Yes! <laughs> That's an inside story. Ask somebody that's been here a while. So anyway, Jarius shows us the love of a father in all of this, doesn't he? He shows us the love of a father at the feet of Christ. It's, a good, it's really a good text for Father's Day, which is coming up. Graham Scroggy says, Do we who are parents go to Christ about our children when they are in danger's way and morally and spiritually? And if there were more parents who resorted to Christ, fewer children would go astray. If we cannot bring our children to him, we can at least come to him on behalf of them. Moral and spiritual sickness is infinitely worse than any physical ailment. Is there anyone sick in your home? Can Jesus not help them? Ask him today, he says. It reminds us to be praying for our parents. I was talking to one of our family members, church family members here a few moments ago about that. We, we ought to be praying for our children all the time. We never, get, we never get over being a parent, never get over being a parent even though they up and move out of the home. We pray for our children from the time they're born or before on through life. Well, in verse 24, now in verse 24, Jairus is going to take Jesus with him. It says, he went off with him and a large crowd was following and pressing in on him, on Jesus. So Jesus goes with Jairus basically saying, take me to your child. And they head off, they're down by the beach. I think that's where this all take place, takes place. Not by the synagogue, which wasn't very far, really. About a five-minute walk from the beach. And... Um, he starts to go to his house, and the crowd just follows, and they're just pressing in, perhaps on all sides. Hard to get anywhere in a crowd like that. You could imagine at least a thousand people, I would guess, were around Jesus there. So that's Jairus, very patient man, very loving man, very fatherly person, concerned about his child. And now in verses 25 through 34, an unnamed woman seeks help and enters the picture. This is part two, part two now. Verse 25, a woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of, of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. She shows up and she came up to the crowd behind him and so forth. And she'd heard about Jesus, it says. We'll stop right there for a moment. She had, it says, a hemorrhage here. 
That was a persistent and chronic situation that she couldn't get rid of, and she'd had it for 12 years. 12 years. It wasn't something you'd take a quick pill for, and it's gone. 12 years. And she'd endured much. She'd hemorrhaged. This means that there was blood all the time coming. Um, best that they can tell, this was probably a particular type of tumor that was inside her birth canal, and she would bleed all the time. She had to have extra cloth around to take care of this. And blood, of course, and hemorrhaging often speaks of sin in Scripture. And so that was kind of the impression that was put upon her by the public in general, so it made her life difficult. There were many cures that they had. They did have doctors. The writer of the Gospel of Luke, Luke himself was a physician, you remember, and traveled with Paul. The Talmud, that's a source of Jewish religious law and theology, says that there were 11 cures for such trouble as she had. Some were tonics and some were superstitious, like carrying ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag in the summer and a cotton rag in the winter. I don't know how that would help you, but maybe they thought it did. They were desperate for a fix to deal with this, and they couldn't seem. Everything she tried to no avail, it did not work. She was basically sick for 12 years, probably weak. It says she had endured word meaning suffered. She had endured things from many doctors. One after another, all kinds of, all kinds of cures were out there. Besides the ones I mentioned, just a kind of a tip of the iceberg there, they were trying everything. Rabbi Judah says this, he writes one of these things from ancient history, he says, the best among physicians is destined for Gehenna. That's hell, by the way. That's what he thinks of the medical profession. And most seemly among butchers is a partner of Amalek. That's what he was talking about. Apologies, by the way, to our medical people here today, but that's what they said in the Old and New Testament. That's what they thought in some cases. And he said they were an enemy of Israel. So it wasn't very highly esteemed among many people. And this woman had really gone through a lot there. She was unclean as a result of this because of the blood, ceremonially unclean. No one could touch her. No one could even hug her because they would immediately be unclean also as part of Jewish law. And some of the law had developed beyond where the Bible was at the same time. So it was all kinds of things that culture kind of foisted upon her. Leviticus 15 even says that where she sat was unclean and Anybody that touched where she sat or sat where she sat or on a bed she had been in was considered unclean also. And so that meant that there was a whole process of uh, becoming clean again. And uh, um, so often that took days. Um, this resulted in her being shunned from her friends, shunned from her relatives. And probably it's very likely she would have even had her husband leave if she did have a husband. So she was, if you can get the picture now, she was physically and emotionally in misery and only getting worse and did not know where to turn. In the meantime, Jairus is waiting for Jesus to talk to her because his daughter is dying and he's got to be patient in all this. And Luke chapter 8 
by the way, who is a doctor, Luke is, said that she could not be healed. He could not be healed. Mark says that she endured much at the hand of many physicians, many second, third, fourth opinions perhaps, and she spent all she had. Mark says she spent all she had. Uh, however, Luke doesn't say anything about that. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Graham Scroggie again says, I have tried and tried in vain many ways to ease my pain. Only this is left at last. Here before the cross I lie. Here I live or here I die. Wow. This is her last option. Verse 27. She comes up, she touches Jesus. After hearing about Jesus, we don't know when she heard about Jesus. In fact, I've kind of wondered if she wasn't a Gentile because there were Gentiles not too far away. It doesn't say. But after hearing about Jesus, his miracles, and perhaps a crowd gathering, she just happens to be there, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. Remember the crowd tended to be on all four sides of Jesus as he moved? For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. It even records her thoughts in the scripture there. Just touch her garments. She drew near. This was dangerous for her to do that. She wasn't even supposed to be in a, in a crowd because she was unclean. Much less touch anybody. So that's why she says, if I could just touch his cloak, because she was considered unclean. If anybody caught her there, she could be in trouble. So Matthew 9 and... Um, Luke 8 say that she came up behind Jesus and she touched the fringe of his garment. And basically what Jesus would have worn is a big cloth that was kind of square and uh, it had little tassels on either end with a tiny bit of a rope that held it there. And he would wrap it around and the two back ones would be in the back two in the front, these little tassels. And she came up and touched the fringe probably of those little tassels there. She's just hoping that something would happen. Her thoughts. It just records those here. She had thoughts about this. Maybe this will work. It's my last resort. I've tried everything for 12 years. If you just touch me. But she couldn't touch him. She was fearful of that. And then she could have thought, well, maybe I shouldn't bother him. I'll just be in the back and I'll just touch his garment and then I'll, I'll run off to the side. No one will know I was ever there. But Christ knew, I think, what she was thinking there. Verse 29, we find now a wonderful thing happened in verse 29. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she fell in her, felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Did you notice the first word in that sentence? Immediately. Immediately. John's favorite way of describing what took place. And then in verse 30, immediately, and there it is again, Jesus perceiving in himself that the power had proceeded out from and had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched me? Who touched me? He sensed that he had been touched there. Um, <clears throat> very interesting as this all happened, it happened so quickly, just over a matter of maybe a few minutes is what we're seeing here. 
He mentioned the power going out from him there. It's a little hard to understand what was going on. There wasn't some kind of uh, electricity or something like that. I don't think it was that. Jesus knew uh, what was going on. He had a divine and a human side. His divine side could know all things, but his human side was restricted by his own will. So which part of that we would say it might be a little difficult to know, but he did sense something there. Who touched my garments? Now, you know, if somebody touches you, you're going to know, but if they touch your garments, you might not know it. Pickpockets are really good at that. Evidently, I think in his divinity, somehow he understood what was going on. Of course, this was in the plan of God. Nothing that happens is not in the plan of God, ultimately. He knows all things. So, verse 31 says, His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he, that's Jesus, looked around to see the woman who had done this. The disciples said, what are you thinking of? Somebody touched you. There's everybody around you. Everybody's touching you, Jesus. They're pressing in on you, four sides. Huge crowd. Like I said, maybe thousands. Somehow, in his divine nature, in his humanity, he did sense that something happened, and I believe what goes beyond that, beyond where the scripture tells us for sure, But verse 33 said, the woman here now meets Jesus face to face. The woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole story. In other words, she knew she was back there. She heard what he said, who touched me? And she knew she was unclean and she could be in big trouble for being unclean and in a crowd like this and even touching Jesus. Jesus is very compassionate. In all this section here, this whole story that we're looking at, he's compassionate in the midst of it. He is with Jarius. He immediately goes with him. And now with this woman, he responds. And he said to her, notice what Jesus said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Let's just stop there. What did he say? Woman. Old woman. Sick woman. Hemorrhaging woman. Unclean woman. No, he didn't say anything. He said, daughter. Isn't that, isn't that compassionate and loving and kind? And that's the way Jesus is for those who really seek him. He loves his people. And he calls her a daughter. It kind of touched me when I thought about that. Sometimes when you're feeling not so good, you think that Jesus is far away. You think God is far away. You think the heavens are made of brass and you can't get a prayer up. He knows you and he knows what you need. She was afraid of her uncleanness and this would somehow break ceremonial law and she would be really in deep, deep trouble. But he speaks compassionately, compassionately. That's the way we ought to be with people who are in difficulty and sick. Compassion, full of compassion. I was glad to see the title of Graham's Sunday School series about compassion. We need that. Christians need that. We need it more and more. We're not perfect. And, um, but the Lord is working on us, and compassion is necessary. So he addressed her as daughter. 
And she had probably not heard that in a long, long time. She's for sure middle-aged or later maybe. She had been shunned. She had been avoided. She had been pushed around. She had been rejected. She had no friends. More likely, she had lost her family, relatives, even husband. Like I say, very, very possible. I'm surmising, but that's the way it was with people like that who had a chronic disease that did not kill them, but it vexed them for year after year after year. He lovingly calls her daughter. A term of family love. Family love, isn't it? And um, a term of endearment. And he told her that her faith had made her well. It seems like both body and, and soul were somehow healed here. By the way, the word for, for salvation in the Greek is the word sozo, and it's used for both um, saving, and that's main use, but also for healing sometimes in situations like this. And so somehow her faith was part of this because she came and trusted that Jesus could do something about it. So suddenly, she's well. Suddenly she can walk. She senses all of this. It's all gone. And that's the last we see of this woman. We don't know her name. We don't know where she lived for sure. But Jesus called her daughter. Thirdly, the third movement in the little story here this morning really is right in verse 35 to the end now. So, this is about Jarius again. It comes back to Jarius, because he's the one waiting in the background as Jesus heals this woman and, uh, and wondering, well, is my daughter going to live? How many more minutes do I have, you know, and so forth, looking at the sundial or whatever, looking at the sky, you know, the, star, the, the, the sun up there. Wants him to come to his house, and probably wasn't too terribly far away. So it says, uh, while he was still speaking, he said, come to the house of the synagogue, he said, the official. So he uh, was a man of some authority, as I said. And um, the people who came were probably people from his house there in verse 35, uh, maybe his servants, and they came to tell him, I'm sorry, your daughter has died, Jarius. It's too late. And so they said, there's no need for you to trouble the master, no need for you to trouble Jesus because she's dead, which implies they didn't really believe he could do anything about it. A lot of people have some recognition for Christ, but they don't believe he can do really much or that he is who he says he is. So this was a delay. This is a delay in the situation with Jairus and, and his daughter. Delays are kind of perplexing. Have you ever had any delays in your life? Any delays in these kinds of situations? Need to go to the doctor, you can't get there because he's booked up for two months. Delays. I've been there. So, probably he could have been frustrated, I think. Don't you? Wouldn't you be frustrated if you were trying to get the one who could heal your child there to him and then he was blocked by an unclean woman? Seconds count, not just minutes, but seconds it appears here. And yet he seemed really patient for all this that was going on. But it's been said, delays are really a discipline for us. A discipline for us. Did you get that? 
Delays are a discipline for us. I've heard the little statement I mentioned before, it always strikes me, God's delays are not delays of inactivity, but delays of preparation. We see them as delays of inactivity, but God is preparing to do something. And God's never in a hurry, is he? He's never in a hurry. He's got his own timetable, his own schedule, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. I think we saw a little bit of a delay. We've talked about this recently in our church life because when our church was about 15 years old, the rental building we were in got sold out from under us, and we didn't have any place to go. And uh, the church was doing well and so forth, but didn't have a place to go. I've been to Ukraine a couple times. They were asking me what I consider going over there as a missionary. I was young enough then. And so we decided to have a prayer meeting. And I think uh, Chris Todd Hunter, where is he? He was here in that meeting. I remember him being there. And that's the meeting where we prayed. And in the prayer, for some reason, my mind clicked. And I remembered a letter that I got months before. And that letter led to finding this a property here that was put up for sale that very day. And the letter had nothing to do about the property, but about a, a little building across the street the Harbor Covenant owned. And God opened the door. God opened the door there. So God's delays are not delays of inactivity, but of preparation. We needed that time of preparation in those years of serving with some of our missionaries and helping out in Ukraine. And some of you have been there too during that time of, of the fall of the Soviet Union and so forth. Really prepared us to stand a little bit more firm against difficulties. Seeing what those brothers and sisters had done. So suddenly this news comes that the official's daughter has died. And she's dead. So everybody's saying, don't call, don't go, won't help. Jesus is busy. Dead people don't rise unless God does it, so forth. So we can think of, uh, we can think all is lost in those kinds of situations. All is lost. That's probably what would have been thought. No, no use in going. All is lost there. Why trouble Jesus? But... Jesus says, call on me. The scripture says, call on me in the day of distress and I will deliver you. It may not be the way we think or want it to be, but that's the way it works out. So verse 36, now verse 36, Jesus overhearing what was being spoken, because they're kind of talking about this among themselves with the, with the disciples of Jesus there and, uh, and the, probably the servants from Jairus' house are talking about it. No, no use he comes. Um, and Jesus overhears this in verse 36, and what's being spoken, and he said to the synagogue official, this is to Jairus, he says, do not be afraid any longer. And then what's the next two words? Only believe. That's faith. Only believe. Believe what? Just follow me, believe me. I think it's kind of the idea. Uh, this is a, this is a, passage sometimes it's I think been skewed and twisted by the word of faith uh, organization or healers that say that if you have faith God will fix it and if God doesn't fix it then your faith is not big enough 
which is really a treacherous thing to do and it's a discouraging thing to do. It's a cruel thing to do to people when their family member, loved one, dies and they prayed and God did not spare them in that sense. Therefore, their feelings about God are not very good. And the word of faith movement is a corrupt movement in that sense very much. So what can we learn from all of this as we look at um, the story? Um, verse 37. Verse 37 goes on to give us a little bit more. We'll begin to learn here. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So Jesus now selects three people to go with him. We don't know how far it is to, her little, to the little house where this guy lived, but he selects James, Peter, and John. We know these as the inner three, the inner circle. Of the 12, they're always the ones who are together. Or they're always mentioned together. And, and three times they go with Jesus. This is one of those times for this healing. Another time is uh, they were at the transfiguration in the garden tomb and the garden area where he prayed, these three guys. They're always there, and they're learning, and Jesus selects them. And so it's interesting, it says, except he allowed no one to accompany him, all the crowd had to stay behind, in other words, except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now what you don't see is the Greek a definite article that exists between except and Peter. And the definite article is there once, but all three names are mentioned so what that means is now these people are seen as a group of three that stay together. The three. The James, Peter, and John, in other words. This is significant. Significant. So uh, these guys are ready to go with Jesus. This looks like excitement, you know. What? they got to wonder what can he do, really. They, you remember, they were not the ones really to really identify the deity of Christ first in the Gospel of Mark. It wasn't until the end that they really began to see that. It was the demons who did it the first and throughout the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels. So verse 38, verse 38, now they came to the house. I imagine there was a little bit of a rush here with Jarius with them, of course. They came to the house of the synagogue official, that's Jarius, and he saw a commotion, that's Jesus saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing, and entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. So, look at this for a moment. Imagine yourself being there. Uh, this was weeping and wailing. I've been in one situation where it was a different culture, as a chaplain where uh, a young man had died and the family began to show up and it was uh, from a different country and they were kind of new to the States and they all filled this little house that wasn't hardly any bigger than this room, the entire house, and pretty soon they're all weeping and wailing and jumping up and down and the floor is moving that much and I, I get ready to leave because I didn't know if I was safe there anymore, but they really wanted me there for comfort. And that's kind of what this was like. It says... Uh, there was all this commotion. Commotion means that there were paid mourners there already. Paid mourners. They paid the mourners to mourn. They weeped and they screamed and they wailed and they recited the name of the dead person out loud. 
with all this pulling of the hair and so forth. There were flute players, and there was always a requirement of two, at least two flute players. It does mention that then in the accounts also that two flute, that flute players were there, and they're playing music, and it's not positive music. It's probably wailing kind of music. They were wrenching their clothes in the midst of this and tearing their clothes, and there was all kinds of regulations associated with families when someone would die. This wailing was part of it. There was no shaving. There was no reading of the law. Except you could read the book of Job or Jeremiah or Lamentations. Do you get it? You know what's in those books. It's a lot of weeping. You could read those books, yes. There was no meat or wine, but only eggs dipped in salt and ashes. And that's what was eaten. In fact, they even removed the water from the house where the person had died, and they moved the water from three other houses on one side and three other houses on the other side because the superstition was that the angel of death may have taken a sword and dipped it in water and then brought death, and so get rid of the water, and maybe this will save the person's life. This is part of those things that they historically followed. And then they would bury the child, and the child would likely be buried that day. If it was in the morning before noon, the child would be buried right away. If not, if it was later in the day, then the child would be buried the next morning, very quickly, very quickly. So there was a commotion there in the midst of all of this hubbub with these people in there, all these mourners in there, which Jesus didn't call for. Jesus comes into this with James, Peter, and John, and they thought, Wow. Now, they probably were used to it. They'd seen it many times. So Christ now commands the, cry, the child to arise. The child, he says, is not dead, but asleep. That doesn't mean that the child is really alive. Asleep is a term to refer to death because a person laying there looks like they're asleep. But he's going to resurrect the child. Verse 40. So they began laughing at Jesus, at him, and putting them all out. He put all these mourners out. I mean, pushed them out the door. Well, what are you doing, Jesus? He pushed them out the door. He wants some quiet in here. And he took along the child's father and mother. So the parents are there. And his own companions, that's James, Peter, and John, and he entered the room where the child was. They go into the room where the child was displayed, probably out on a bed or something, and had died. Looked like they were asleep, but had died. And there he was. A tender moment, again, the compassion of Jesus shows. He reached out to the child. He took the child by the hand, and he said, Talithakum, Talithakum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. This is the big moment. You might ask yourselves, why is it Talithakum, that was actually um, the language that this child was familiar with, and I believe that Jesus, it's Aramaic, and that the reason that Jesus used this word is because the child would respond to that in coming to life, which would make it all the certain that she was healed. So it was the language of the people of Palestine, but um, a little different than Hebrew there. So now we come to verse 42 and verse 43. What a moment. The child is awake. It's quiet now. The child gets up. In fact, the word for getting up is in a tense that means she just, she just got right up. 
You see, they don't have to, like, like some people are, you know, kind of crippled. They can't really get up very fast, and they pull themselves up. She just stood up, and she's erect right away, indicating she was fully alive. From being fully dead, she's fully alive. This is not the only place where you see miracles like this of Jesus. It's the New Testament is full of them and the apostles as well later. So now in verse 42, it says immediately, there's that word again, underline it, underline it every time you see it in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. And she was 12 years old. Gives us her age, she was a child. And immediately, there it is again, they were completely astounded. That's probably the disciples. And uh, I'm not so sure the parents were as astounded as the disciples were because they still were struggling to understand Jesus. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Don't tell anybody. Why, why would he say a thing like that? Wouldn't you want to go out and spread the news to the world like Jesus told the demoniac from Gadara after he was cast out, the demons were cast out and he was normal. He said, go tell everybody about the good news. It was just the opposite. Become a missionary to the Gentiles on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, first missionary there. But Jesus says just the opposite here. Don't say anything to this because he knew that if the word got out that he healed that child that the mobs would only grow bigger and there would be only more curiosity seekers there. So she got up, heiress tense, punctiliar action, all of a sudden. And she left. So once again, just a word about the word of faith movement that says that if you have faith to be healed, you'll be healed if you have faith enough. No, that's not biblical. God is sovereign in what he does and chooses what he does, but we also know that all people will die eventually. And God is with us even in that, in those tender moments. So what can we learn from all of this? Uh, just a couple of quick lessons as we look at this. Number one, the miracles that we see here and all the other miracles show that Christ was God. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's not so that people get well and better. It's to show that Christ is God that he has power over life, he has power over death, he has power over everything in this world, he even has power over the weather, which we see in the um, situations in the Sea of Galilee where he calms the storm. But that point is made all throughout the Gospels that Jesus' miracles really were there to indicate that he was divine. He was divine. Divine power like no one else. They had a hard time believing it. So for one, he healed the older women with the chronic issue of bleeding and made her now, really, ceremonially clean, instantly. No doctors could help her, only Christ. She trusted what she could. Christ's power, however, affected her, and he willed it, and she was healed. Christ also raised a dead child, who couldn't have faith because the child was dead. There was no way the child could have faith. He comes up and heals her. And by the way, Jesus healed people who were believers and were not believers. He healed both throughout his ministry, not just one kind. Only her father really began to understand all of this. 
And really her healing as she got up then is a preview of a future event we know of as the resurrection, Easter. It's a preview of the Easter to come. And a preview of the day that Chris preached about in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the rapture and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's coming a day. There's coming a day. Miracles showed Christ was God. Number two, those healed were, were opposites. That's interesting, isn't it? Did you notice that? The child and the older women were opposites. And they were showing, really, Christ's compassion for everybody, all mankind. For example, the synagogue official was a person of importance and authority in the synagogue culture. And um, while the woman was a nobody, we don't know anything about her except that she was a woman with a hemorrhage and therefore unclean, total opposites. And of course it was the synagogue's leader's child. It was a man, it was a woman and a child. The woman was older, the child was younger, that's another opposite there. The woman had long-standing ailments of 12 years and had endured much misery, it says there. Um, but it didn't kill her, but the child was quickly dead, probably a quick Fever or something like that took the child's life. We don't know. And we know that the child would have been Jewish because the father was in the Jewish synagogue, but we don't know what the, the sick woman was. And I just kind of wondered myself if she perhaps was from Gadara and was a, was a Gentile where they were over there. That's just a guess. And then fifthly, the woman expressed faith, but the child was dead and couldn't. Two opposites. And everything is in between, and Jesus can do it all. Jesus can do it all, and we need to trust him. And that's the message here, that he is the Messiah. And that's the third, that's the third message and final message from all of this here. All the miracles that Jesus would do ultimately were to show that he was God, but to show beyond that that he was the coming and long-awaited for Mashiach, Messiah. Remember when John was in prison, it mentions this in Matthew 11, 2 through 6. It says, now when John, this is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, all the things he was doing, the healings and these kinds of things that we're seeing here, he sent word by the disciples because he, he wasn't quite sure how this would all work out in the end and he needed some clarification. He himself didn't understand, but he was the one that prepared the way. And this is what John said when he sent the notice to Jesus. He said, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one who is coming? Are you the Messiah that we have waited for for so long? He didn't really know him very well yet. Or shall we look for another? Or shall we look for another? Messiah, which goes beyond his earthly current reign then, but later to his reign in the millennial kingdom and later in heaven. And Jesus answered them, this is Matthew 11 still, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. Blessed is he who comes, who is not offended by me, Jesus said. And what he's doing is he's quoting Isaiah 35 and he's quoting Isaiah 61 and so forth where we see promises like that. He is the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. That's who I am. I'm the Messiah. Yes, John, 
I am the one who is to come. And praise the Lord, he has come, hasn't he? That's why we're here this morning. That's why we're worshiping this morning. Hebrews 2, 3 tells us a little bit more, I think, in a sense about what the apostles did and the miracles they did. We always remember this one. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken to us through the Lord? That's Christ. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. That would be the apostles and later those who had seen it. And God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So those miracles that the apostles did and Jesus did all pointed to that similar thing. Christ is the Messiah. The word doesn't, the world doesn't like that. There's people who say he's a good teacher and so forth, but he wouldn't be a good teacher if he wasn't the Messiah, because good teachers would not have told all those things that he could do, and they would be liars. So are you looking for a miracle, or are you looking for the Messiah? Looking back into the future when he will come again. The evidence is in, and there is no less than four Gospels that tell us about it. And then we have the history of the early church in the book of Acts and all the epistles and books of prophecy and revelation. He has come. He is reigning and he will reign again and he will come again. And all who know of him, if they will be saved from their sin, must repent and believe in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with the attitude of repentance there is obviously in mind. And you shall be saved because Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your grace and we do thank you for your kindness and these stories of Jesus' compassion on this very, very sick, dear daughter of a lady for 12 years, totally healed, disappears into history, and this little girl that died, and then she comes alive. She stands up straight. And the power of God is seen in Christ in the Gospels in a unique way here in a kind of double emphasis, kind of a tied together, almost twisted together to make the impact. That Christ is the Messiah. He is here. And the world needs him. And if it doesn't turn to him, there is eternal damnation to pay. May you speak to each heart in a way that only you can, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.